0: Welcome. It's great to have you all here. Boy, it's a it's a great day for a science fair project. Of course, every day is. Have you ever wondered why scientists have such fresh breath? It's because of all of the experiments. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, it's time to turn it over to someone who's always fresh. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight.
1: smell that? (laughs) Oh, fresh. So here's one for you. What would you get if you took the arms and the legs off of your robot? A snake robot, right? You know, no arms, no legs. We're going to talk about snake robots tonight. Exciting stuff. Uh, This is some research from the Carnegie Mellon University. They've been working on modular snake robots. Check this out. You can see how it actually can slither around like a real snake. But they got it to do stuff that real snakes can't quite do, at least not in the same way. Notice how it's surrounding the tree. And each one of those little pieces are modular and stick together. And uh, they all work together in a specific shape to do something. Now check this out. This is the way that robot snakes climb trees. And, you know, the best part is it's got the good features of a snake and not the bad parts. You know, no sharp teeth, no mouth, right? (laughs) But then it can climb up to the top of the tree and look around. So this is a robot snake that they've been working on for several years. And it's coming along. It's pretty amazing what it can do and how well it can maneuver. But now, just recently, they're taking it to the next level. They are making the water version of this snake and uh, in order to do that they had to change some things you know to make it more waterproof and everything so I want to talk about some of the upgrades that they made first of all they had to harden the design so water wouldn't get in where it wasn't supposed to so they uh, encased the electronics in a box you can kind of see it there and then they also added some fans and uh, turbines to steer and move around in the water And this allowed the snake robot to maneuver really well through the water different ways. I want to show you a video of it going around. This is is the best part right here. So this is in the swimming pool, right? (laughs) That's where we try things like this out. And you can see the hardened segments there where they have the electronics. And then it's got a nice turbine in the back that gives it the speed. And then those little turbines around on it to make it be able to maneuver. Excuse me. Okay, so uh, I want to show you one more video because I want to show you how well it can maneuver. And uh, you can see how it's going through the different little hoops under the pool, and they have the camera that can see where it is. They actually let a lot of different students try steering it and swimming around the pool. And uh, it's pretty amazing how well it can maneuver. Because of the way it's a snake, it can actually kind of wiggle through tight spaces that normal submarine drones and things like that wouldn't be able to do. And their goal is to make something that organizations like the Navy could use, the US Navy, to inspect their ships. A lot of times they think they might have damage underneath the hole on the boat or the submarine. And the normal way to do that is to send divers down. They go and inspect. And that's expensive and it's time consuming. If instead they could drop a robot like this down, go and look around, they could know what was wrong before they have to pull the boat out of the water in the dry dock and inspect it. So there's some really valuable potential applications like that. And then also it'd be really useful for inspecting in pipes and things. You know, uh, It's really hard to make a robot that can make those turns and everything and be able to swim in the open. So for example, to go down in the open, find the pipe, and then fit in it. So there's some neat applications like that. And so maybe snakes aren't as bad as we thought, right? <laughs> Can uh, do some pretty amazing things with snake robots. That's all the tech we have the time for.
0: <laughs> now it's time to break your moments in science with Tobias.
2: We need to talk about math. Oh, no, math. <gasps> yeah, math. Cool. Yeah, math is a magical thing. And you can actually do really incredible things with math. In fact, did you know people have been able to tell the future with math? Yeah? I mean, think about it. Like weather, you know, I guess that's more like guessing the future. Um, weather forecasts. They have to use a lot of calculations to try and figure out what the weather's gonna do. And of course, then they come and give you more information than you even need on the weather forecast. I mean, I wanna know how the wind's gonna blow, but I don't need to know which way it's coming, okay? They get on there and they're like, Oh, it'll be an increase of nor'easterly wind this morning. Okay? It's not like I'm gonna go nor'easterly. I comb my hair west, I can't go out today. <laughs> that or they think I'm just I'm sh- selling on a ship. It's gonna be like a nor'easter. Drop the sails, mateys. How to starboard? This ship's sailing. Anyway, that got a little out of hand. But being able to calculate that is pretty incredible, and especially actually be able to make predictions, OK? And we're going to talk about using math to do something nobody had ever done before, and doing it based on discoveries of previous scientists, OK? And we need to start by talking about this guy, Sir Isaac Newton. And he made some pretty amazing discoveries. But the one I want to talk about tonight is one of his laws, okay? Now, it was the law of gravity. Now, the apple, you know, the famous apple story where he saw the apple fall, and all of a sudden he had the thought that what if the force that made that apple fall to the ground is the same force holding our entire solar system together? It's what's holding Earth in orbit. It's what's holding the moon in orbit around Earth all based on this same force and basically what the law of gravity stated was that objects that have mass attract each other so when the apple fell to the earth yeah there's all that gravity from earth there's also some some gravity some of that force that the apple is pulling the earth got pulled toward the apple too it's just such a huge difference in mass that it's hardly even noticeable but it's not just this one object has mass. It's any object uh, has, has force. It's any object has this gravitational force. And he didn't just throw this law out like, this is a statement, okay? And then you need to believe it. I mean, I could make a statement. Skittles are yum. It's the law, okay? <laughs> he actually gave some incredible math to back up what he stated and ways to calculate the gravitational force in, in so much that they actually realized they could start calculating how things were moving. Okay, so wait, if the moon is being held in its orbit by this force that that Newton created an equation we could actually use to calculate it, then we could start calculating the path of the moon and anticipate where it's going to go based on that law. And there's, you know, also the earth going around the sun or if we want to calculate another planet like Jupiter. But there's a little catch, and that is Newton points out, it's it's every object that has mass. So if you want to calculate something like the solar system so if you look at this image we've got all these orbits obviously they're much further apart than that but all of these planets are orbiting the sun and they sometimes pass near each other and that is going to have to be put into the calculation because when two planets, these two huge masses pass one another there's a gravitational Uh, basically a pole that happens on themselves, each other, besides the sun. And so they had to, if you're going to calculate the orbit of Jupiter, you've got to pay attention to, well, is it going to pass Saturn here? Is it going to pass Uranus here? That's actually going to change how the orbit's going to go. So people started to get really into this, using this new tool that Isaac Newton figured out. And they start figuring out or trying to figure out the orbits of these celestial spheres. And the really p- big ones, literally big ones, uh, were Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. Now, these were the outermost planets in the solar system. And as they started working to calculate this, first they calculated Jupiter, and it worked out. They got it. It, it was amazing, because they made these predictions of how Jupiter was going to go, where it was going to be when, and they got it spot on using Newton's math. And they did it with Saturn. And then they went to Uranus, and something weird happened. Okay, so when, when Uranus went by Jupiter and Saturn, they expected to see a kind of interesting thing happen because of the pull from Jupiter and Saturn. But then it went out way out the boonies all by itself, and it acted weird. Like, but no, nothing was there. It was just Uranus by itself, and it didn't follow the pattern they predicted. So they were like, wait a minute. What's going on here? Well, the, the kind of accepted um, reasoning was, well, Uranus is so far away from the sun that maybe Newton's gravitational laws don't apply. So this is like an exception. So the, the Newtonian law of gravity, it kind of starts petering out as you get that far away. Okay. Well, there were some scientists and mathematicians like these two gentlemen here. John Couch Adams and Urbain Le Varier, from so Ur- Urbain was from France and John was from England, and they were sure that it wasn't Newton's law that was wrong or that was unknown, that they were sure that where Uranus was going way out by itself and acting funny, it wasn't by itself. They were sure that beyond Uranus, there's gotta be another planet we haven't discovered yet. And they were determined to use the math that Newton had created to try and figure out where that planet was going to be. And these two gentlemen actually did it separate of each other, but they happened to be doing it at the same time. And they actually calculated, using the the movement of all the different planets that they knew of and using, of course, Newton's math, they calculated where they thought there is a planet. There's gotta be a planet right there. And we can't see it, but we need a telescope. So both of them went to a near observatory Uh, John Couch Adams went to one in England, and it didn't go so well. It was probably like, I beg your pardon? I can't seriously turn my telescopes for every math problem. You must be absurd, okay, (laughs) or something. But they said no, okay. But Irving, he went to, I don't know why, but he went to Germany, and there was an observatory in Berlin. And when he told them about this new planet, he said, very different response, what? It's a new planet. Well, yeah, it's new. Well, it's old, but it's new. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Give me the numbers. So they got that night that the German astronomer got the numbers from him of go this much that way, this much this way. He tried it, and he found a planet less than one degree from where um, Urbain had calculated that the planet would be, and they would name it Neptune. And this was a planet that actually had been seen before. And we do have to tell, we have to give some credit to Galileo because Galileo studied the stars like crazy way before this. And he actually found Neptune. They went and checked in his records, but he didn't think it was a planet because we were actually, we, Earth, was moving at a certain direction and Neptune was moving in a certain direction at the time. They have a special name for it, but basically the way they were moving it looked like Neptune for a little while was standing still and not orbiting, not actually moving. And, so, and that happened to be right when Galileo looked. So he thought it was a star. So he has a star documented and it's actually Neptune. Um, but this would allow them to discover the only planet that we have ever discovered completely through math. So it was 100% using Newton's math and then he said, look right there and you'll find a planet. So they found a planet and it was here's a beautiful picture of Neptune. And the fun fact, it has a huge orbit. I mean, it's way out there. Now, remember an orbit's going around the sun. You have to go all the way around the sun. That's one year, right? Well, one year on Neptune to go all the way around is 165 Earth years. So, that means that every season is over 40 years long. So, You know, if you you hear people say, I was a winter baby. It's like, I was a winter guy, okay? Because I don't even know what summer is, okay? Um, So, but a pretty incredible thing to think that just with the math, they were able to do amazing things. so, learn the math because you never know what magic you'll do. Thank you.
0: And now, introducing Roger Billings. (laughs)
3: <laughs> turn me on with and with that, that
4: very subtle <laughs> entrance.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I like that one.
4: <laughs> you were kind of discovered with math tonight, weren't I you? I was. Yeah, and the was, electricity was really and wonderful.
3: electrons and voltage. and.
4: Do you think you could get your people to give me an entrance like that? Yeah.
3: i work on that.
4: you work on that? Okay, okay on good. good. That'd be <laughs> pretty nice. Uh-oh. Do
3: you really want one?
4: Yeah, let's see. Uh, <laughs> here we go. This is pretty good. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting, hmm. isn't it? What is it? It's a cell phone. <laughs> you tell should get, you get one of to these. Tell me more. <laughs> they're, they're actually pretty neat. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're definitely pretty neat. I wanted to show you something tonight. Okay. If you wouldn't mind just checking that out for me, can you do that? What it's do you think blue- of it? Oh goodness. <laughs> I didn't say play it.
3: I didn't. I just mean said to. check it out. Okay.
4: Okay, that's a speaker.
3: Right. It's
4: got an amplifier. Uh-huh. It's pretty neat. Um, the question I have is why is there a red rim around the top of the speaker?
3: That's for effect, just to make somebody want to buy it. Buy it? Buy it. Mm. See, it's red. Oh,
4: that's cool. So, what do you use the speaker with the red trim for? To play sound, to play to music. To play sound, Okay music. Hello. <laughs> I'm uh, uh, coming in, uh, calling us, calling us. Can <laughs> uh, you hear us? Urgent message for Doctor Page and no. Monet from outer space. It's for outer you. Outer space. It's for you. Here is the message. Hello.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello.
4: Turn that off. There. I like outer space. The outer is there space. more? Yeah, it's probably the people who did the display thing. You know. With the well,
3: I. Do
4: you remember? that last time, we talked about if you have two coils Uh and coils are wire wrapped around cores and you put an alternating voltage in one it comes out the other one. And it's transferred by a magnetic field in between. When electricity goes through the wire, it creates a magnetic field and if the electricity is changing direction quickly it'll transfer that magnetic field over here and generate a new current. But... If the number of windings on here is small and the number of windings on here is very large, it multiplies the voltage. Mm -hmm. So the voltage changes. Do you remember that, right? Yes. Well, I want to show you. We have here two coils, a little coil around the outside and a big coil around the inside. And the number of coils really, really is different. So we put a voltage into this outer coil and it gets multiplied to the inner coil. And you can see on top, here we have a little point. I'd like to just go ahead and energize this. Can you see that?
3: Yeah, that's pretty neat.
4: Okay, that is oh, look at an the, arc. Yeah. Can you see, can
3: it? see that? Oh, that is really neat. Isn't that fun? I love it.
4: So, that is a coil. <clears throat> Why is
3: there an arc coming out
4: the top? Why is there an arc coming out?
0: Uh-huh.
4: Because. This coil is so many fewer windings than that coil that this gets up to thousands of volts. So many volts that it actually ionizes air and you can see it discharges. It's called a Tesla coil. Okay? I should have known (laughs) that. Yes, and this is a little wire gizmo I'm gonna put on top of here. I'm gonna do it whether it wants to or not. There we go, How? I want you to watch what happens when I have it hooked to this little piece of wire.
3: (laughs) It's so fun.
4: That is like science
3: magic right there.
4: Yeah, that is science magic. So now we have little electrical charges shooting out, and it actually propels it in a circle. And I think it's I
3: could watch that for a long time.
4: So Just a little piece of wire with little tips pointed back. This is an example of one of the many, many things we can do with the understanding of the law of science that says that this magnetic field will cause a voltage in the other coil and that will generate electricity and it will multiply the voltage. Remember, this is how they got power from Niagara Falls to New York City. They stepped the voltage up to a very high voltage, transferred it all the way to New York City, and then used transformer to bring it back down. That's why we have transformers all over in our system today in very high voltages. and I think this is neat stuff to understand and something we really want to. Now last week, uh, someone asked, so why do we call the speed at which electricity changes directions or goes on and off Why do we call it Hertz?
3: Yes, they wanted to know that. And it
4: was named after a a guy born in Hamburg named Mm -hmm. Mr. Herr Hertz. Herr Hertz, Mr. Hertz. And uh, he, it was named in his honor. But what it really means is how many times does the electricity go on and off in a second? If it goes on and off once per second, then it's one Hertz. If it goes off, A million times a second, then it's one megahertz. Mm -hmm. All right? right. If it goes a billion times a second, it's a gigahertz. And I really want us to to understand this, so I'm going to show you something. I've got a little light emitting diode that is hooked up to our signal generator. Remember, last time we learned that this machine will generate. a a signal according to the controls we set. Right now, it's saying that it's set at one hertz or one cycle per second. So, I'm going to go ahead and turn on. I want you to watch this LED. If you notice, it's blinking. And if you check your watch, it's blinking exactly one time per second. So, we now have an alternating current. Now, i be a little careful here. Uh, alternating means it goes one way and then the other way, one way and then the other way. But this is showing that so you can actually see it. Now, if I turn my knob and change it from one hertz to two hertz, notice what happens to the, to the blinking. OK, now it's at two hertz.
3: Mm-hmm, it goes faster. Can
4: you tell that it's blinking twice as fast?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And then three hertz, things faster. Now it's blinking five times a second, or five hertz, five cycles per second. When you see it this way, at least for me, it helped me understand what's really happening.
3: Yes.
4: And that's all it is. It's just blinking at different frequencies. I could crank this clear up. Let's go up six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Now it's blinking ten times a second. It's really cooking. If I turn it way up, it'll start blinking so fast that we may not even be able to tell that it's blinking. You can kind of see it there a little bit. Mm -hmm. As it gets faster and faster, it gets very hard for us to see. Now, the significance of this is mind-boggling. We're just making it blink. We're making this electricity go on and off, on and off, and you can see it go on and off and on and off. Well, now it's clear up to 56 times a second. That happens to be a frequency that you can't see very well with your eye as it goes on and off, but you can hear it with your ear. If I were to hook this wire up to a speaker, we would be able to hear 56 Hertz. In fact, turn off for a second, take out the LED and these wires up to your alien speaker with the red trim. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Turn it back on. Can you hear it? Yeah. What a beautiful sound. (laughs) I can hear that. What if we go ahead and turn that up? See if you can hear it go up.
3: You can hear it change. That is neat to know.
4: We're clear up to 80 cycles per second I can hear that That is one hundred cycles per (laughs) second. You know what it sounds like
3: Uh, (laughs) Let's keep keep
4: going let's let me go back to 100 so we keep these even there's a hundred 200 300 (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's the wrong, the wrong show. It this wrong is way. lives. This is lives. <laughs> That's what I okay? can hear, though. We are now at 500 cycles per second. That could drive you kind of wacky, couldn't it? <laughs> but let's keep going. We can hear higher than that, can't we? 1,000 cycles a second. Can you see what's happening here? As it goes faster, the pitch changes. And why is that? Well, it's because inside of our eardrums are little hairs. And they're all different lengths. And when that sound vibration comes through, because this speaker is making air vibrations, like a wave of water, only it's air. And as it goes into the ear, depending on the frequency, it makes one of those little hairs vibrate. We call it resonant frequency. We talked about that Mm -hmm. a while back. And by which hair vibrates, the brain gets a message and says, the 1,000 hertz hair is vibrating. There is a 1,000 hertz noise. Do you hear it? But that's kind of neat. It's really neat. It's kind of neat. We actually have an electronic instrument inside our ear and our brain. And I mean that sincerely because the ear sends a message to the brain, doesn't it? In fact, it's even got a marching band in there. We have a hammer and <laughs> a, drum, a drum, air drum. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, but it's a thousand hertz. Now, uh, if we go up high enough, the pitch will get so high that we can't hear it. I mean,
3: mm-hmm.
4: dogs can hear it, right? but we can't. And if you're gonna design a high fidelity music system for somebody's home, you wanna make sure that the system can play higher frequency than people can hear. So they hear all of the quote, unquote, overtones of the music, okay? Let's see if we can get a little bit higher. Are you ready? 1000 hertz and climbing. 20, Nope. 2000, know, let's be careful. 2,000 cycles per second. It's getting way up there. We're right in the hearing range, mm-hmm. and we're climbing. Mm-hmm. That's 6,000 hertz. Can you still hear it?
3: Unfortunately, Unfortunately, yes. is, it, <laughs> is it going like that?
4: Okay, well that's a bad frequency, let's go on up.
3: Okay, wow. I can still hear it.
4: Oh, we're coming up on 10,000 hertz. Mm -hmm. It's way up there. Pretty soon, it's going to be hard to hear. Most people can hear well above 10,000. We start getting up to 16,000, 1,700 most people. Can't hear it, it, peters out. Some a little bit higher. Good microphone, a good sound system would work all the way up to usually 33,000 hertz. So it can go way up there. But now, there's something even more magical to this. So we started out very slow, one cycle per second, you can see it blink. And then two, and you can see it blink faster, twice as fast, and then four, and it was f- twice as fast again. And then we got up to where you couldn't even see it blink with your eyes just watching it. But when we put it on the speaker, we could hear it. And then we heard it get higher and higher Mm -hmm. and higher pitch, and now we're getting up to where we're not even going to be able to hear it. Let's see if we can do that. I'm going to move it over here so it goes up a little faster. So it's up there now where it's just It gets to where we can't even really hear it. But that's only the beginning. If you keep going up in the frequency just a little bit more, and you start getting up into hundreds of thousands of cycles per second, you suddenly are not in sound anymore. You're in radio waves. The same thing. As it gets faster, it becomes radio signals. So we have our 10 out there that are sending the signals and you keep going up more and pretty soon you get up into fm radio and then you get up into television and you keep going keep going keep going keep going and all of a sudden instead of it being a radio wave it starts to be light light and radio is the exact same thing it's just the frequency is different how fast it's vibrating isn't that interesting And then as you tweak it up more, it goes from blue to red to green to yellow. As the frequency changes, the color changes, and that gets back into the magic of our eyes. Our eyes are able to detect the frequency of the light until finally the wavelength of the light is so fast that our eyes can't even see it anymore. I think that's all amazing.
3: So light and sound are the same thing.
4: Oh, are light and sound the same thing? Yeah. She caught us on a little detail there. We better back up. (laughs) Okay. When we made the sound wave, Uh we made the wave by having the speaker move up and down according to the frequency, and by it moving, it jiggled the air and caused a pressure wave of air, which we heard. That's what sound is. Mm -hmm. Sound travels at about 700 miles an hour, Okay? okay? When you get up into talking about radio waves, however, it's not air vibrating anymore. Air can't vibrate that fast. Now it becomes an electromagnetic wave. A sound wave can't go out into space. In order for a sound wave to travel, it has to have air to vibrate. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. In space, there is no air. Electromagnetic waves, on the other hand, they can go out into space, and they do. We would never be able to get energy from the sun if electromagnetic waves couldn't travel through space to bring us that light and the, the wonderful life-supporting energy that, that we need every day. So when I talked about sound, I was talking about the frequency When I was talking about radio waves, I was talking now about an electromagnetic wave, and that's a wave that's caused by a propagating electric field, or magnetic field. And yet, it's all frequencies. Mm -hmm. It's all how fast they vibrate. And radio waves, microwaves, light, are exactly the same kind of wave, just vibrating at different frequencies. And there's a whole spectrum of frequencies. I have a big chart in my mm-hmm. laboratory which I really <laughs> like that shows you what's at every frequency across the whole spectrum.
3: Yeah. And
4: it really is pretty neat, isn't it?
3: So last week you talked about the 60 cycle hum we can hear.
4: Mm-hmm. So if
3: we put 60... So you want to hear 60 uh-huh. cycle?
4: So if we were to go back here, and here we go, we're down to one kilohertz so, I'm going to flip over to the next scale. So, bring it down. And we we got to listen to this, huh? 300, 200, 100. Now, if we're going to get down to 60,
3: 90, 70. Oh,
4: yeah. I'm a wow. 60 cycle That's- guy. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, that is the hum. That's caused by the electricity that's in all of our, our wires and our buildings. They're all changing directions 60 times a second. Except in Europe, mm-hmm. it's 50 times a second. Let's, let's do some European sound.
3: <laughs> and that's just the standard they decided on? Or why that's do the that That's the
4: standard way? in Europe. And it's, it's mm-hmm. fascinating. In Japan, half the country is 50 and half is 60 just to be real confusing because they adopted the European and the American standards and what a mess.
3: You have to have different plugs on the end.
4: Yeah, Yeah. kind of a problem. (laughs) But uh, it's important that uh, we all be the same so that our our equipment can go back and forth and some equipment will work on both frequencies but some won't and so you have to be a little bit careful. But think about that. It's changing direction 60 times a second. Now that's where I want to remind you that we build a speaker. Do you remember this? We built this speaker. It's got a little magnet here on the bottom. And on top, we put a piece of very thin cardboard mm-hmm. with a wire coil so that it would vibrate. Do you remember this?
3: <laughs> da, da, da. Yes. Yeah.
4: You, you should remember that. And see this little coil, We made a coil out of wire. And if we hook the wire up to electricity, Then every time there's a pulse, this coil will become an electromagnet and it'll pull against the permanent magnet here on the back. So I thought it would be kind of interesting if we could hook this up to our signal generator.
3: You kept that. I found it. (laughs) I found it.
4: I found it. (laughs) We made it. We found it. And it works. Let's see if we can make this work. So I've got it hooked up. So we'll turn this back on at 50 cycles. doesn't sound too good does it she's broken seems to be
3: Now I can hear it
4: she's not very loud so let's go ahead and turn up the uh, amplitude which would be how strong the signal is there we go now we can hear a little better Go back over to the frequency. You
3: can hear it; it still works, doesn't
4: it? So we're clear up to three thousand two hundred cycles, and Doctor Pege Monet is vibrating. You hear that? (laughs) I just think it's really interesting that this really works.
3: See if I can make it stop.
4: It's really, really vibrating. If I took the magnet out, it would have a real problem. It would stop vibrating because this coil is making an electromagnet pulling against it. Now, there's another breakthrough moment of understanding that I hope we can have right now, and that is this. We're making frequencies. We're hooking them up to this very nice speaker and this red one, (laughs) right? And we're hearing the sounds of those frequencies and they're just like solid tones. Mm -hmm. It just keeps going boop. So we now need to make another jump. What if instead of a signal generator just made a nice smooth frequency, stays the same frequency all the time, what if we had something that would change the frequency? And what if the something could change the frequency at just the right range, more or less, more or less, little noise, a little space in between some noise, Mm -hmm. then it would sound like we're talking. And we can play the sound of us talking and the box instead of a signal generator would just be a radio or a stereo. And that's all it's doing is making little pulses of electricity which vibrate the speaker at exactly the right time to make it sound like us. That's nice. And you say, well, I can see how it could play that, but how would it ever be able to learn when to turn it on and off? And the answer was real simple. Thank you. You do it with a microphone. This is a screwy microphone, but <laughs> you do it with a microphone. I love it. Okay? In a microphone, you have a little diaphragm hooked up to a coil that vibrates and generates electricity at exactly the right frequencies created by the sound in our voice. The vibrations, the tone, we could talk high or low. It'll catch all of those. Conversed electricity travels through a wire, gets amplified and comes out to the speaker, and that's why we can play Science Live over the Internet and students can hear it on their computers is because in there somewhere is a headphone or a speaker that is vibrating exactly the same as this little microphone which happens to be pinned to my collar. That's
3: just neat.
4: I think that is amazing. It is. It is amazing. And if you understand the simple... Little facts about nature, about science, about energy, about electricity—you can start to figure out how to put together your own speaker.
3: So we have an incoming comment. Okay. From Elizabeth, she okay. wants you. Okay. Just know. a minute. We're going to
4: talk to Elizabeth about it. In- Just a minute, please. Okay. We're here.
3: She said "Will you please tell Dr. Billings that he is so smart?" Right now, <laughs> please tell him. <laughs>
4: I would now like to dedicate a moment of silence to that comment.
3: <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Elizabeth. <laughs>
4: Enjoy it. Okay.
3: <laughs> we have another question. So the microwaves that are in a microwave
4: oven,
0: oven mm-hmm.
3: that heat this person's food, this mm-hmm. young, young man's mm-hmm. food, are they the same microwaves that are there that you were talking about?
0: Exactly. That the same
4: room? electromagnetic waves uh-huh. at the microwave frequency. That's the same frequency that is used when they put those dishes up on a tower and they send a signal over microwaves. It's the same frequency that was used to be able to see airplanes with radar. That's why they call it a radar oven because before it was an oven, it was a radar used to be able to see airplanes in the sky. And then when they started to realize that you stand in front of the radar, it would kind of heat you up a little bit, said, why don't we cook our dinner? That's also why microwaves are always shielded with a door that has an interlock. So if you open the door, it turns it off, because it's really not very good to have those waves going all around you. Is it? They
3: kind of warm us up, wouldn't they? They crisp us up. They can do. They can
4: cook our goose. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We good with that? Uh huh. Okay, good. Was there anything else? Sorry for
3: those interruptions. No, not quite yet.
4: Those were interruptions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Could could you say that first one again?
3: Elizabeth wants me to thank you. you. (laughs) That's really good. You are really smart. Yeah,
4: we got lots of times for those. But it is interesting that all of the things that make up science, every single little piece of knowledge that makes up science, is just a little speck. And the only thing that's really confusing about science is there are so many specks. But when you get each individual little one, I mean, this is just a coil of copper wire hooked up to a lovely picture. I mean, I tried that. this with my picture, and it didn't work.
3: <laughs> Did it make a low sound? No. Nope. No? It didn't work. Okay, we have another question.
4: Before we get to that other question, I'd just like to finish this point. Every single little piece of the knowledge in science is very simple. It's just they throw so many at us. And the same is true of math. Mm. Math is a way of communicating things about science. They call math is the language of science. Math is the tool that gives us the ability to make science do the things we want. And you say, well, it's kind of different. It's it's harder to learn than baseball. (laughs) And that may be true but it has its place and to tell you the truth i don't think we would ever have a baseball bat if it wasn't for math so just think about that they're very important now why wouldn't we have a bat without math Uh do you mind if i google that real quick (laughs) no (laughs) No, it's real simple a bat is a very beautiful shape Uh it's Got your grip? Done. You know you can throw it and you catch it and you do the thing to see who gets to bat for. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, <laughs> it gradually gets fatter, and it's perfect shape to be able to hit a ball. And it's cut with the grain so that unless you hit it where the writing is, it won't break. It's a neat thing, and that all requires a lot of technology it'd be very hard to hand make a bat as perfect as the ones we all take for granted. Mm. And those machines and all of that is done with science, with technology, with math. So you can see it just about everywhere. And I used to get overwhelmed by it until I finally realized that each little piece I could handle. (laughs) And the challenge is when you miss a piece, sometimes we're in a math class, for example, And then we're sick for a few days and we come back and they're talking Greek because they introduce new concepts, new words, and we don't know about them. And and that's why a tries to find out when you miss something and go back and get it for you so you can catch up. But uh, knowledge is power. Now, what do you want to say?
3: Well, they want to, well, we'll do that one second. So, (laughs) they wanted to hear the alien speaking again through your speaker, but um, this one... They want to
4: hear the alien again? That's funny.
3: This one, though, um, so this young gentleman was thinking in a car, if he made a speaker... uh Uh-huh. made a speaker play the frequency of the car's speed, then he wouldn't need a speedometer.
4: It is a very interesting invention this student has made. If he knew the car's speed, and he made a speaker, he could hear how fast he was going. And as he went faster, the pitch would go up, and the pitch would go down. Uh, A speedometer in a car is kind of a real interesting thing. Uh, When you put two magnets together, they attract and they pull towards each other, right? Mm -hmm. If you turn one of them around, they repel. If you put one magnet against a piece of still, it grabs on, like on your fridge door, you put a magnet there and it grabs because the metal is a magnetic material. But what if you put a magnet on a piece of aluminum? You put it up against a piece of aluminum and it doesn't stick. Mm -mm. Aluminum is not magnetic. And yet if you take a tube of aluminum Mm -hmm. and drop a magnet through it, it goes through very slow. Why? Aluminum's is a conductor. As the magnet goes down, it generates a current in the aluminum which resists gravity and makes it fall down slow. So there is an interference caused between the magnetism and the aluminum and that's how they make speedometers. They have a magnet. I'm going to oversimplify this just a bit to make it understandable. They have a magnet that spins that's connected to your tires especially the older spinometers. And so the speed that the magnet is spinning is against a piece of aluminum. And it doesn't really attract, but it drags the aluminum around, and the aluminum is hooked to the speedometer. Mm -hmm. And so it's a magnet going by the aluminum and the pull of the magnet on the aluminum that tells you what speed you're going. But this idea of using the sound is kind of like how... We do it in a lot of our modern cars. If you know how fast something's going, you can send a pulse, and now those pulses are read digitally, like the computer, and they're able to display. But if you hooked up an analog generator so that it was just the frequency of how fast your tires were turning, then it would change the pitch as you went different speeds. Of course, when you're pulled over, and they're saying, hey, you were breaking the speed limit. You say, no. No, I was just going, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and they might say, well, that was faster. This speed limit here is only uh. <laughs> right?
0: that's Right? It'd be a little
4: hard to calibrate, <laughs> but you could do that. And it's interesting because that idea could actually be turned into a project where you could calibrate the speed so it could actually read out. Someone there is Arnof. going to be a Arnoff Arnof. Is going to be a very brilliant person. Maybe I hope, maybe a scientist. But it turns out that the knowledge that you get can be applied to almost every field there is. So, good luck. Um, mm-hmm. Please consider science. We need, we need good minds. We do. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Was that it?
3: <laughs> well, besides playing the alien voice and. Other issues. (laughs) Let's see
4: them landing. Hello, Earth. We're coming in. Calling Earth. (laughs) Calling Earth. Earth, can you hear us? Urgent message for Dr. Page (laughs) Monet from outer space. Here is the message. Hello. <laughs>
3: is that, your, is that your voice? That's
4: a wonderful <laughs> message. I'm that not it, Liam.
3: Have some voice. <laughs> <laughs> I resemble is. that comment. It is. <laughs> <laughs>
4: All right. I like so, it. So, <laughs> to summarize, you remember the little blinking light. The light blinks faster as we turn up the frequency. If it blinks one time a second, we call that one cycle per second, or one hertz. If it blinks ten times in a second, then it's going ten hertz. If it blinks a million times in a second, we call that one megahertz. A thousand times would be one kilohertz. A billion times would be one
3: gigahertz. Yeah, mm-hmm.
4: and that really hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> In the, um, the Billings computer, the very first one we built, we were very proud to have a CPU inside that worked at eight megahertz. In other words, we had a clock that would click eight million times a second. And our computers today are so much faster. It's just really amazing how technology is growing and growing and growing. And every one of those advancements in technology came from individual little steps like the ones we're doing right here for the science fair by the way want to thank everybody for all of the wonderful science fair entries and the dance entries we have some amazing ones in fact they're so good that i'm out drumming up more prizes oh really oh yeah yeah these have are fun. good these are really good it's exciting that's mm-hmm.
3: exciting we have questions if there,
4: if the students are allowed to come visit us now? If the students are allowed to come visit For us. For Science Live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we love to meet students. We, we, uh, uh, here in Kansas City, we're in, in the mode where we're just starting to be able to free up after this uh, challenging adventure with COVID. And we really look forward to seeing more students. We're actually beginning plans to build a new Science Live uh, auditorium. Uh, Right now, we can have 80 people here. And we, in the new auditorium, will be able to have 500. So we have a lot of people that do want to come. we love to see you. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you do have interest in coming, please reach out to us and let us know and we'll try and schedule it. We are running pretty much at full capacity, so it's good to kind of schedule and plan it. Uh, more and more and more people are coming to visit Kansas City, which is an awesome place, and we really like that. In fact, so much so that we are seriously thinking we need to get this Acellus world built so that when you come, you get to actually do some hands-on learning things here. I. I believe that uh, when you've been doing all these CELUS courses, it'll be really special to come and see things. We weren't able to do a CELUS camp last year because of COVID and the restrictions, but we're hoping that we'll be able to do it again very soon. It's really fun to meet together. I'd also say that today, uh, the R&D team that work on the projects for STEM started working on the fifth, the level five robot.
3: How fun.
4: Yeah, the level five robot. And we're actually thinking that on this robot, we're gonna give it the ability to see colors. And other things, distance, it'll have a digital compass and a lot of sensors that we haven't had before. But the idea is that you write a program and when you start, and, and this is something you can do with like a whole class full of students. You can all have your robot. You can all have it programmed and ready, set, go. And each robot has a starting color. We call it the chameleon. How fun. <laughs> chameleon tag and, or color tag. And it uh-huh. works like this. So you start out like you could be yellow, another one would be red, another one would be blue. And you have your little light on there. And then as the robot goes around, it can zap the other robots. And if it happens to zap the other robot before it zaps them, then it changes colors. The thing is, this isn't a video game. This is a programming challenge. So you write a program to tell your robot how to go capture the other robots. Yeah. Yeah, just think. And if you write a good program, you'll be a winner.
3: Mm-hmm. Competition! And so wow. We're
4: calling it. I think it was Jonathan that named it Chameleon Tag, and I think I think I added Al- the tag. Fun. Yeah, he was just the chameleon, but it's an exciting idea, and to think that we can actually design something like that. is is really fun. The people that are going through these STEM courses and learning these little principles of science one by one by one by one by one, are going to actually soon be able to design their own robots like this. And that is really exciting. Uh, Dr. John is the one that thought instead of having them control them, they need to write a program, which is an excellent idea because learning to program these robots to outmaneuver the competition's robots is a great scientific achievement and a lot of fun. And it's kind of like the real world because in the real world if you invent something like maybe a better speaker and you put red on it and a lot of things, whether or not it'll catch on in the market is gonna depend on how good it is. Maybe it's gonna be a little bit by whether or not you have pretty red, Mm -hmm. but probably gonna mainly be by how good it sounds and how well the Bluetooth links up to your Mm -hmm. telephone or your computer and things of that. So it's a very competitive world, and that's one of the reasons why our products are getting so good is because people are always trying to make one better, and that's what we should do. Do you
3: have time for one more
4: question? Uh, Just a minute. (laughs)
3: It's from Bianca. It
4: stopped. No, I do. Yeah, go ahead.
3: Um, She wants to know if it would be possible to build Power plants
4: that use electromagnetic energy. Hmm. Would it be possible to build power plants that use electric?
3: Electromagnetic.
4: Electromagnetic energy. Mm-hmm. Well, power plants uh, are of many varieties, but most of them do use electromagnets to generate the electricity. You have to have something to turn the magnet, and that could be water coming from a reservoir. Mm-hmm could be solar, well, in this case, solar is a little bit different, it can heat water, or a nuclear reactor can heat water that then has steam that turns a turbine. But uh, there are some people that are talking about things like zero point energy. And this is, at this stage, more of a theoretical thing, but there is uh, an energy throughout the cosmos that many people believe can be tapped and, and of course, when someone figures that out, uh, we will have unlimited energy for everyone. In fact, there's another step, maybe I'm a little closer. Uh, what if we could master or harness the power source of the sun, which happens to be the same power source as the stars? What makes all that wonderful energy? You know, we get a lot of heat, a lot of warmth from the sun, and yet, When you think of how big our orbit is around the sun and how many places the sun's energy is going that doesn't even hit the earth then you you begin to understand how hot the sun is and how much energy it actually creates and we're talking about 100 million degrees it's a very very hot thing but the energy of the sun comes from turning hydrogen into helium it's a fusion reaction two hydrogens fuse together to become a helium and that is a, a nuclear reaction that gives off a tremendous amount of power with that reaction the heavy hydrogen the hydrogen isotopes in water that are in our oceans would create enough energy to run the world for thousands of years think about that all of the energy we need on this planet is in our oceans. Hmm. And it's not every hydrogen atom that is deuterium or tritium. When you have a hydrogen, you have a proton and you have an electron. Just one proton, one electron. But if you find a hydrogen that has a neutron, then it's a, a form of hydrogen that can form helium. And some have two. And so we call that The water that has the heavy hydrogens in it, we call it heavy water. We can separate it out, and just in the ocean is enough heavy hydrogen that we could combine to power a whole planet for thousands of years. And why don't we do it? Well, simply because some of you haven't invented (laughs) the way. And you say, "Well, well, what's wrong? What's holding it up? And the thing that's holding it up is when hydrogen fuses with hydrogen, to form helium, it is so hot that it melts the engine. Hmm. It melts whatever we put it in. It melts the the reactor. We have been able to unlock that energy for just a second in a hydrogen bomb. But to get it hot enough, we have to have an atomic bomb to ignite it. Of course, you can't really use that very well because it blows up. But we have to find a way to contain that reaction. And we don't, we haven't found any metal or material on this earth that can withstand those temperatures. So as soon as we figure that out, now scientists are working on it, they're making bottles out of magnetic fields. And they're having some success, Mm -hmm. they're getting closer and closer. But that's called nuclear fusion, it involves hydrogen, and someday it's gonna make a real difference. You know, I love hydrogen. Yes. Hydrogen is my favorite <laughs> element. In fact, I like it so much that most of the atoms in my body are hydrogen, <laughs> as are yours. But uh, something really interesting about hydrogen that maybe some of you haven't thought mm-hmm. of. Now, I run a car on hydrogen, my home on hydrogen. That was just combining hydrogen with air to make water. That's not nuclear fusion. Unfortunately, I haven't done that yet. And I don't know how, but... We're going to figure it out, aren't we? But there's this other thing. There is a certain kind of one-cell organism that's called, in fact, this this whole family of this kind of organisms called hydrogenotrophs. Mm -hmm. And these are one-cell organisms that grow not when they get sunshine, but when they get hydrogen. And so you can make big tanks of these things and bubble hydrogen up through and, and this, uh, these organisms grow. They grow really fast. And they are edible. It creates wow. food without sun. With hydrogen, we can create enough food to feed the whole world.
1: And I think that's,
4: it's a wonderful... <laughs> it's the... Beautiful it's element. Yeah. I mean, all the elements are beautiful. And you know, it's amazing that you have just one proton and it's hydrogen. You have two, it's helium. You have three. You just keep adding protons and it changes all of the properties of that atom. It's
3: amazing.
4: And that's amazing. That's what we study and learn about in chemistry. So study hard, learn a lot, change the world. <laughs> See you next time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.